If you would pull out your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1 today. Genesis chapter 1. And I want to address this theme, making a case for life in a post-Roe world. Men and women, everything has changed in the abortion debate in the last few months, as you have probably noted. And we're going to talk about how we can be biblically grounded in defending what we believe on this issue. We're going to be looking at Genesis, verses 26, Genesis 1, 26 to 27. This is ground zero in the abortion debate, as I will explain. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. We have a tradition in our home. When you graduate high school, dad does not buy you a new car. But I will buy you an experience, meaning I get to cash in frequent flyer miles and the graduate gets to point to a place on the globe they would like to go to and we go as a dad-kid trip. So my oldest son, when he graduated high school, there was no question where we were going, men and women. We were going to the beaches of Normandy, France. And those of you that have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, you understand what happened there at Omaha Beach on June 6, 1944. The first wave of Army Rangers hit that beach, and they sustained nearly 80% casualty rates. And there were reasons for this. Chief among them, the tide charts had been all wrong. Our guys were told they were going to get dropped into water that was maybe shoulder depth. No, they were getting dropped into water that was 30 feet deep. They're carrying 100 pounds of weaponry. They're going right to the bottom and drowning before they get a shot off. Those that don't drown only survive if they ditch their weapons, but now they have another challenge. They've got to run across the beach with no weapons while they're being fired out from the front and the sides. And you, if you saw Saving Private Ryan, the first 30, 40, 35, 40 minutes of that film, you saw the carnage that ensued in that situation. And as we were there, Jeff said to me, Dad, let's walk out into the water and walk back toward the beach the way our guys would have. And we're out there having this incredible father-son bonding moment, and the French tour guide is yelling at us in French, come on, come on, you're holding up the whole group. I'm like, hey, babe, we saved your butts in this war. We're staying right here. We're going to enjoy this father-son moment. But men and women, I have to tell you, as I was standing there in the surf and just surveying the scene that our soldiers would have seen that day back then, I was struck by how incredibly helpless it must have felt to feel like you had to advance against a foe without having the tools you needed to advance. And today I want to talk about how we can make a case for life that is biblically grounded in a culture where a lot of us feel like we're on hostile turf. And this topic matters to all of us. I'll tell you why. It matters to you parents because guess what? In a few short years, your kids grow up and that landing craft gate is going to open up and your kids are going to hit that beach known as the secular university campus or the workplace and they're going to be under fire and they're going to have to know what they believe on this issue. And it's not going to be the kind of thing where they can say, well, my church believes abortion's wrong and people are going to be satisfied with that. They're going to have to defend what they believe biblically. For those of you that are students, you need the confidence that your case is sound, that it's not only biblically grounded, but it's rational and you can defend it and be a good Christian doing so. 
So we're going to talk about what that looks like to make that case when you feel like you're in way over your head and you're outgunned. And by the way, it's not, it's not crazy that you feel that right now. Let me tell you what happened in late June. As you know, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the two abortion Supreme Court cases that made abortion legal in this country, were overturned by the Supreme Court. That's very good news. But let me tell you why that, what that means now. Instead of the Supreme Court being the sole authority deciding abortion policy for our nation, which is what had been the case up until late June last year, now the issue has been flipped back to the states to make their own decisions. And you know what that means, men and women? All of us are now pro-life apologists. Not just the pros, we're all in this. We all need to know how to make a biblical case. And we are right now today in Genesis 1 at ground zero. Because here's what's going on in the abortion debate. Despite everything you've heard, the abortion debate is not about choice, privacy, or trusting women. It's about will this biblical view of human value prevail or will its secular rival prevail? The biblical view, you have value because of whose image you bear. The secular view, you don't have any value unless the culture decides to recognize you as a human have value. Those two worldviews are clashing right now. And we as Christians need to know how to engage on this issue. Now some of you might be tempted to think, okay, I get it, we as Christians, but why, why does that relate to a local church like this one, like Living Truth? And I'll tell you why it relates. Because we as Christians in the local church should be about the Great Commission, amen? amen. What does the Great Commission say? The Great Commission says that Jesus says to us in Matthew 28, go make disciples. What does it mean to make disciples according to Matthew 28? Jesus tells us, teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. What is one of those commands? We're not to shed innocent blood. What is abortion? As we'll see, it's the shedding of innocent blood. Therefore, abortion does relate to our ministry as fulfilling the Great Commission. It's not a political issue. Some people mistakenly think, well, that's a political issue. I don't want to deal with it. Men and women, if I may say so bluntly, all moral issues become politicized. But that does not relieve us of our responsibility of speaking truth from a biblical perspective. So that's what we're going to do today is look at how we can do that as biblically grounded Christians. And um, what I want to do is give you some good news to start off. You do not have to have a doctorate degree in theology or philosophy to be an intelligent Christian on the abortion issue. You only need to be clear on a few questions we're going to look at, but I want to step even beyond that. Some of you may think, if I don't have all the answers and I don't know how to answer every objection, I can't be effective, and that is not true. My friend Greg Kolkel puts it this way, you know what your job is and my job as Christian ambassadors? It's not to close the deal on the spot. How often have we failed to witness because we don't feel we can answer everything that might come up or we fear that the person won't fall on their knees right there and say the sinner's prayer? How about this, though? What if your job were not to close the deal? That's God's job. Your job is, as Greg says, to put a pebble in their shoe. You ever had a pebble in your shoe when you're out hiking? It wears on you and wears on you until you stop to deal with it. We're going to give you the questions that will help you put the pebbles in the shoe today so that you can make a difference. And here are the three questions we're going to look at. Number one, what is the unborn? We need to be clear on that because if the Bible teaches, as it does here in Genesis 1, that all humans bear the image of God, if the unborn are human, they too will bear the image of God. So we need to know what the unborn are. Number two, we need to be clear on what makes us valuable as human beings. 
What is it that gives us our dignity? You know, people speak about human dignity all the time, but what does that mean? What makes us have value and dignity? We need to be clear on that. And then finally, we need to be clear on what our duty is. And if we're clear on these questions, men and women, we can make a persuasive case. You can make a persuasive case wherever God has placed you. You don't need to feel like you're, you're not able to stand up and do this. You can be clear. In fact, before we're done here today, you'll know how to defend your pro-life view in a minute or less. And Pastor Mike has already given me permission to lock the church doors. Nobody leaves until you can do it. So um, we're going to equip you one way or the other. You will be equipped before we're done here today. Let's start with that first question. What is the unborn? The scripture here says that God makes man in his image after his likeness. And that means, men and women, we have to ask the question, are the unborn image bearers? And the clear answer will be that if they are human, they too are image bearers. So let's ask the question, what, are, what is the unborn? Is the unborn one of us? And we're going to answer that question first by going to the science of embryology. And here's what that science says. From the earliest stages of development, from the one cell stage, men and women, you were a distinct living and whole human being. You weren't part of another human being. You were already a member of the human family. Now, let me help you illustrate it this way. Hold your hand up like this, and I want you to give yourself a good pinch on the back of your hand, okay? Give yourself a good pinch. No, we're not trying to wake you up. There's a point to this. Ladies, if your husband is not participating, skin cells off the back of the neck are fine. <laughs> give yourself a good pinch. Congratulations, you just sent a couple of hundred somatic cells hurling to their deaths on the Bible in front of you. Now, I have more bad news for you. Every one of those cells you just sent hurling individually contains your DNA encoding. Did you just commit mass homicide? The answer is you did not, and let me explain why. These cells on the back of your hand are merely part of another human being, but you as an embryo weren't part of another human being. You were already a whole living member of the human family, even though you were small, immature, and had yet to grow. These cells are merely part of a larger human being. You as an embryo were already a distinct, whole living human being. Now, sometimes people go, I don't understand that. How can you say something that looks just like a ball of cells is a human being? And people will say, you can't even see that embryo without a microscope. And they're right. It doesn't look like a baby. But it is a human being, even if it doesn't look like a baby. It's a human being at the earliest stages of development. And sometimes our intuitions about something are mistaken. And let me try to illustrate it this way. For those of you that are in the room today, students in particular, you need to know that there was a time when we did not take pictures with our phones. We had devices called cameras. And cameras were these rectangular things that the lens would open up, light would come in, and it would record images on this stuff called film. Now, all of you students, film was expensive. We did not waste it taking pictures of our food. And just so you know, if you're a dude here today and you take pictures of dainty little portions of food on a plate, I unfriend you on social media. It better be a rack of ribs or an In-N-Out burger or we're just done, okay? Uh, but the way it would work is you would shoot pictures and then you'd, you'd take, after you shot 36 exposures, you took the film out very delicately, put it in a little tiny canister, and you took it to this little place on the far side of your neighborhood supermarket parking lot called Photomat. 
You would drop your pictures off, young people, and you would wait a month and a half for them to come back. <laughs> and half the time, the pictures were overexposed, right? Some of you know I'm preaching gospel right now, right? You, you can relate. Well, the Polaroid camera, of course, was the fix for that. It came out in the late 1950s, early 1960s. How many of you still have Polaroid cameras? They're still around, right? Well, you know how they work. You shoot the picture and it spits it out. And I want you to imagine that we as a church are going to end the service early today. I understand that Mike, Pastor Mike is known for preaching very short sermons. Is that correct? <laughs> I was instructed about that at the first service. So uh, let's say we get out of here early by the, a miracle of God. And we go to uh, the airport down here. Uh, I think the nearest airport is Pomona. And we grab a flight, a charter flight. And we are going to go to Mexico, and we're going on a Mexican safari deep in the jungle. And we're going to see if we can film wildlife. You have a Polaroid camera, and while we're on the safari, you snap a photo of a black jaguar leaping across the trail in front of us. You nail it midair. Now, I want you to further imagine that as you're waiting for that picture, you're trembling with excitement because you know National Geographic's going to pay you huge bucks for that pic. And while you're waiting for that picture to emerge, I come up behind you and I yank your Polaroid camera out of your hand and I yank the paper out of it and I tear up your developing photograph. Will you be angry at me? Furious. What if I glibly replied, what's the big deal? I didn't see a jaguar in that picture. All I saw was a white paper with a brown square on it. You would look at me with your eyes on fire and you'd say, are you crazy, dude? The jaguar in that picture was already there. We just couldn't see him yet because he was still developing. Men and women from the one cell stage, you were an image bearer that was still developing. We couldn't see you, but you were all there, even at the one cell stage. You were already an image bearer. Why? Because this passage says that God created all humans in his image. If you were human back then, and the science of embryology is clear that you were, then guess what? You were an image bearer back then, even if we couldn't see you. You were just developing like that jaguar. That's the truth of the science of embryology. Now, there is another reason why people don't get this. They don't want to get it. It's not just that their intuitions are misaligned about that developing embryo. They have reduced abortion to an issue of personal preference, like choosing chocolate ice cream over vanilla. And they say things like this. Well, if you don't want an abortion, don't have one. Have you seen that bumper sticker, don't like abortion, don't have one? Notice what that does. Biblical Christians do not make a case against abortion based on likes and dislikes. It is possible to like something and still say it's wrong. For example, my father-in-law, he's 88. He drives a Corvette, has two Harleys, he surfs and he skis. He will not die in his sleep. He will die at age 99 flying off a cliff on a pair of skis somewhere into the arms of Jesus. That's how he's going to go. <laughs> now, I am making four trips to L.A. from Atlanta in the next three weeks. And one of the trips, he won't be here. I know where the keys to his new Corvette are. I would like to take it, but why won't I do it? Because it would be what? Wrong. Morality is not about what we like or prefer, but you and I on that hostile beach I just mentioned a moment ago live in a culture that thinks right and wrong are strictly preferences. You have your likes, I have mine, don't judge me. And they think abortion is like an ice cream issue. You like chocolate, I like vanilla, let's not judge each other. 
And they, they have totally reduced the issue to a matter of personal perspectives. And that's why you get people like Wolpe Goldberg. I, a few years ago, I was bored one day, and I decided to tune into that bastion of conservative thought known as The View on TV. <laughs> and there was Whoopi Goldberg saying, well, you know, these religious people, if, if they don't like abortion, they don't have to have one as if we had no argument to offer that was rationally based. In fact, she went on to say, your opposition to abortion is nothing but blind faith, essentially. You don't have any reason for your view. But we do have reasons, and that's why we're asking the questions we are. We aren't just shouting out a view. Biblical faith is not blind. It is based on evidence. It's trust based on evidence. Pastor Mike mentioned that I flew here from Atlanta. I had faith the plane would get me there. I looked up in the cockpit. There's two guys with thousands of hours of flying experience. I'm on a reputable airline that may not be so good for luggage, but it's pretty good for getting you there. And I got here. And uh, I had faith, but it wasn't blind. It was grounded in trust on evidence. And that's what we're arguing for here, is we actually do have evidence for what we believe, but if you listen to our critics on that hostile beach, they want you to believe that we have no case at all, it's just our preferences, like that bumper sticker. We don't like abortion, and we want to just force our views on others. Well, how do we reach people who think abortion is just a preference issue, like choosing chocolate over vanilla? One way we do it, men and women, is to help reawaken their moral intuitions. How many of you saw the movie... Uh, Schindler's List, Passion of the Christ. How about Taxaw Ridge? Okay, between all these movies I'm mentioning, that's probably 95% of the congregation. Let me ask you a question. Why did you pay money to go see very graphic and disturbing imagery on the screen? I know your answer for the same reason I did. You understood that those images, though disturbing, would convey truth in a way that no words ever could. And the abortion issue is no different. There are millions of our fellow citizens that have reduced abortion to a matter of mere personal preference. And our job as Christians who are grounded in the word of God is to lovingly but truthfully help reawaken their moral intuitions to see abortion as a moral issue, not an ice cream issue. In just a moment, I'm going to roll for you a very short clip. It's 55 seconds long. And I'm going to tell you exactly what's in it in case you would rather not watch and please hear me, you do not need to watch this clip if you don't wish to. If you do watch, here's what you'll see. You will see a first, second, and third trimester fetus post-abortion. So it's going to be disturbing to look at. I don't think there's any young children in the room left. I think they all went to kids' church. But parents, if there are any here, please put your arm around your kid and encourage them to look down. I want to say something else, and please hear me. I know that there are some men and women hearing me right now, and for you, you're thinking, man, this issue isn't abstract. It hits real close to home. And I want you to understand very clearly, we are not showing these images to beat you up, and here's why. I'm not interested in beating you up. Pastor Mike isn't interested in beating you up. This church isn't, and here's why. We are committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And men and women, that gospel says that everybody in this room right now has a common problem. We are by nature, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, rebels against our creator. In other words, God creates a good world of people to worship and enjoy him, and we rebel against him as a race through the actions of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And God, who would have been perfectly just to be done with the entire race. Have you ever thought about that for a moment? 
that if God never saved anyone, he'd still be a just God because we'd be getting exactly what we deserve. But instead, God sends Jesus, the sinless one, to stand in our place condemned, taking the judgment every one of us in this room deserves. If you're here today and you've had an experience with abortion, let me tell you who you're sitting next to. You're not sitting next to good people because the Bible says none are good. All have turned away. You're sitting next to redeemed sinners. And heaven isn't going to be full of good people. Good people aren't going to be in heaven. Rather, heaven is going to be full of redeemed sinners that trusted in their sinless substitute who paid the price for their sin. And if you're a man here today, and some of you may be thinking, man, for 30 years I've had this secret, this thing I felt I could never tell my fellow believers, or I I just felt like somehow I was second class in God's kingdom because I'm carrying this weight of what I did. I want you to know that if your trust is in Jesus as your Savior and your, your only hope, if he is the one who you trust as your sinless substitute, God the Father is no longer sitting in judgment of you. Your sin has been taken on by your Savior who drank every last drop of God's wrath against your sin. Jesus didn't drink part of that cup. He took the whole thing. And here's another thing to keep in mind. I know it's tempting to think, okay, that all sounds good, but I still sin. Yeah, we do sin, and here's why. When Jesus died for our sin, God the Father didn't make us righteous. He declared us righteous in virtue of what Jesus did for us. We are declared righteous. That means God legally transferred our guilt on Christ, and we get his righteousness. So if you're here today and you've had an experience with abortion, can I tell you what you need? You don't need an excuse. You need what everybody sitting around you needs in exchange. You need Christ's righteousness for your sinfulness. And I want us to keep that good news of the gospel in mind as we take a look at this clip. And oh, by the way, if you're wondering, did God accept the sacrifice of Jesus? Yes, because he raised Jesus from the dead after Jesus was crucified. So you have confidence that your sin has indeed been covered. So let's keep that confidence in mind as we take a moment to look at this clip. If you choose to look away, there's no narration. You won't even hear anything you don't want to hear. So feel the freedom to look away if you prefer not to watch. We'll go ahead and roll that clip at this point. be thinking right now, do we really need to show something that provocative to make our case? And I'm sympathetic if you feel that. I don't like these images any more than you do, but I will tell you this, that images have been used powerfully to change people's minds who didn't want to change. And I'll give you an example. I don't know how many of you have seen the recent movie called Till. It's about Emmett Till, a 14-year-old African-American boy who in 1955 took a journey from Chicago where he lived 
to visit his cousin in the town of Money, Mississippi. And when Emmett Till got off the train in Money, Mississippi, he began to brag to his cousin and the cousin's friends about his two white girlfriends back home. And they didn't believe him. They said, no, we don't believe you. You don't have two white girlfriends. And they looked at him and said, we don't even speak two white girls here, let alone date them. You're not telling us the truth. And he said, I am. And they said, okay, hotshot, we dare you to talk to a white girl down here. So that afternoon, Emmett and the cousin and a bunch of friends went into Bryant's Grocery Store in downtown Money, Mississippi, a dirt floor, tiny little convenience store. And Emmett went up to the counter, and that 14-year-old African-American boy looked at the white married woman behind the counter as he purchased his piece of gum, and he flashed a flirtatious smile at her and said, thanks, babe, and left. We think nothing of that today. That was a big deal in 1955. Two nights later, that boy was taken from his uncle's home where he was spending the summer by the woman's husband and another man, and they drove him outside Money, Mississippi, and after savagely beating him and breaking nearly every bone in his upper, upper torso, torso, they finally finished him with a shot to the head and threw his corpse in the river. And the local sheriff who discovered the corpse, presumably three to four days later, could not believe what he was looking at. And he took what was left of Emmett and didn't even put him in a coffin, just a wooden box that he nailed shut. And he put a note on there to Mamie Till, Emmett's mother, that read, don't open the box, you won't like what you see. And when Mamie Till got the body in Chicago, she stunned the world with an announcement. She announced to the assembled newspaper press corps there in Chicago that there would be a public funeral for her son and it would be an open casket funeral. At that moment, the press went absolutely ballistic. They said, you cannot do this, Mrs. Till. Do you realize the condition your boy is in? This will upset people. They will be angry at you. And she said, yes, they will be, but I want the whole world to see what they did to my boy. And that image of Emmett Till, which you can Google later, be warned, it's gruesome. That image was published nationally in Jet Magazine, and it launched the civil rights movement in this country. Rosa Parks, when she was told to go to the back of the bus because she was black, said, I couldn't get that picture of that boy out of my mind. That's why I, didn't, that's why I stood my ground and did the right thing. What boy? Emmett. Why do pro-life Christians show images like this? Why do we even show them in a church service? I'll tell you why. Because if pro-life Christians don't lovingly but truthfully open the casket on abortion, our nation will continue to tolerate injustice it never has to see. But men and women, hear me. While we open the truth of abortion, we also open the truth of God's word that sinners can be declared righteous because Jesus stood in their place and bore the wrath of God on their behalf. We offer truth. We offer hope. We're doing both. It's not one or the other. We offer truth and we offer hope. Second question we need to be clear on, not just what is the unborn. We know the answer now, a distinct living whole human being. We also need to be clear on the question of what makes us valuable. And this gets us to the heart of Genesis 1 that we just read. The worldview debate going on right now is what is it that makes humans valuable in the first place? Is it that we are valuable simply because we're human, as God's word says, or is it that we're valuable only because we can do certain things functionally? That's the debate. In just a minute, I'm going to have you look around the room and stare at some people. Uh, those of you that are students, if you're here and you're thinking, boy, I saw a cute looking guy or girl I'd like to look at, this will be your God-sanctified moment in the worship <laughs> service to do it. By the way, do not laugh. This ring says 38 years married to the best woman in all of Christendom, and I met her that way when my college pastor said, go find somebody you haven't met before. I'll tell you tonight if you want to know that story. 
So go ahead, one, two, three, stare at some people. If you're married, I trust you know where to look. <laughs> Give somebody the eye, all right? That's enough. Some of you are having too much fun at this. Look back this way. I have a question for you. Those of you that were staring around the room and having a blast with this, what makes us equal as you were staring at people? What is it that makes us equal? Are we part of a culture that is obsessed with equality? You better believe it. We want income equality, social equality, marriage equality. I mean, it's crazy. But what makes us equal in the first place? Are we all physically equal? I'm looking over here at this side of the room, and I can attest for certain that if I had to play one-on-one basketball against 70% of the people in this section, you guys over here I got a shot at. These guys, no (laughs) shot. But this group here, they would destroy me one-on-one, and here's why. At age 62, I do not have the speed and agility I did at 22. I still got the shot, but I'm too slow to get open for it. If I had to play one-on-one against these guys, I'm toast. I'm done. But men and women, think about this for a moment. If Planned Parenthood is right that we can destroy a human fetus because it's not as developed as we are, if it's development that gives you your value and right to life and you have more of it than me, you have a greater right to life than me and human equality is out the window. Are we all equally self-aware right now? If you had coffee, I don't mean decaf, people. I mean coffee before church. Can I see your hands? Raise them high. Coffee is proof that God has not utterly forsaken us. All right? If you had coffee and did not have pancakes and other things that load you up with carbs, you're firing on all cylinders right now, cognitively. If you had a bunch of carbs and didn't have coffee, you're this side of comatose right now. Your self-awareness is barely here. All right? But men and women, if self-awareness is what gives us value and a right to life, If we can destroy a fetus because it's not yet cognitively functioning at the level you and I do, if self-awareness gives us dignity and value and you got more of it, then you have greater rights than I do and human equality is out the window. There's one thing we share equally in this room. We all have the same human nature that bears the image of our creator as we just read. That's it. If you ground human equality in anything else, you get human inequality because none of us share those traits equally. And oh, by the way, they may come and go in the course of your lifetime, in case you were wondering. You could be more or less self-aware now, but not so later, especially after lunch today, correct? So we have to be very careful that we do not ground human equality in traits that none of us share equally and none of us will keep at equal levels throughout our life. This is the challenge in front of us. And our secular culture thinks it has the answer for equality. It does not because it has no foundation for it. You as a biblically grounded Christian do. We all have value because of whose image we bear. Uh, Now, uh, I could tell you this, that if you were looking around the room a moment ago and thinking, okay, so what is it that makes us equal? It's, well, as I said, we all bear the image of God. That's it. But If you think about other living things, they have natures too, but we don't think they are equal to humans. In fact, in Genesis 1, just a few verses earlier, God gives man dominion over the animals. And a lot of people in our secular culture today think, oh, well, animals have the same right to life as humans. And what they don't recognize is if that were true, then that would mean that a hit and run with a squirrel is equally as bad as a hit and run with a newborn. Do we think there's a difference between eating a Harold burger and eating a hamburger? I hope we do. We should know these things. In other words, 
God is very clear about the dignity, and it's not based on your functional abilities. It's based on whose image you bear. Uh, there are differences between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, but they don't matter, men and women. And can I preach for just a moment on a little side note here? Too often as Christians, we assume the burden of proof when we shouldn't. Somebody says, oh, you know, the, the, the disciples just made up the stories of the resurrection. And we think, oh, I've got to prove they didn't. No, they made the claim. They need to prove it. If I claim there's a pink elephant swinging from that exit sign back there, who bears the burden of proof? Those of you that just looked did the right thing. <laughs> you, you don't bear the burden of proof. I do. I made the claim. If I claim that a fetus has no right to life because it's not self-aware, who bears the burden of proof to show that self-awareness matters? You or the person making the claim? person making the claim. And you're going to hear out there on that hostile beach, oh, embryos and fetuses, they're different from us. Why, they're too small. They're not developed enough. Yeah, they are different from us. But the real question is, are they different from us in ways that justify killing them? And that's the question you need to press. It's not enough to just assert a difference. They got to tell us why that difference matters. Now, when you were teenagers, you were really good at this. Mom and dad would say something like, I don't want you staying out past 10 p.m. Well, why not? Because nothing good happens after 10 p.m. So, you were really good with that word, so. I want you to bring it back into your vocabulary. Somebody says to you, why that embryo is, doesn't look like us. Very gently, without sarcasm, say, so. Why do I have to look a certain way not to be killed? Don't accept the burden of the proof there. Make them defend it. Does that make sense? You follow where I'm going here? So there are differences between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, but they don't matter. Let's look at them. There's a difference of size, a difference of level of development, a difference of environment, a difference of degree of dependency. Think of the acronym SLED, S-L-E-D. I know that's hard for you to do here in Southern California where you've got to go up in the mountains to see snow, but it's not hard where the rest of us have to live throughout the year. Where it's so cold, you almost lose your salvation walking outside. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you. Hellfire sermons do not scare those of us who live in the east. Blizzards scare us. Um, let's look at those four differences between you, the embryo, and you, the adult. There's a difference of size. There's your S in that SLED acronym. You were smaller as an embryo. But since when does body size determine your value? Men are generally larger than women. Does that mean they deserve more of a right to life? If you're a young man doing this right now, we now know why you will not be married. Um, Shaquille O'Neal, the former basketball star with my beloved LA Lakers, was seven foot two when he played, uh, bigger than all of us in this room by at least a foot. Does that mean he had more of a right to life than us because he was bigger? Body size doesn't equal value. What about level of development? You were less developed as an embryo. You know what your answer should be? So why does that matter? Two-year-olds are less developed than 21-year-olds. A two-year-old girl does not have a developed reproductive system yet. Is she less human and valuable than a 21-year-old who does? This is exactly, by the way, the point Abraham Lincoln made when he would debate proponents of slavery. They would say to him, Mr. President, that slave is different than us. And Lincoln would say, yeah, he is. But is he different from us in ways that justify enslaving him? And Lincoln, echoing the logic of this passage we read this morning, said the following, and I'll quote him word for word. Lincoln would say, you say man A is white, man B is dark. Oh, it's skin color then that matters? Take care by that rule. You're a slave to the first person you meet with skin fairer than your own. You say it's not skin color, it's a matter of intellect. The white man, you allege wrongly, 
You say he has a superior intellect to the dark man? Take care. By that rule, you're a slave to the first person you meet with an intellect superior to yours. You see what Lincoln was doing there? These same arguments that are used to justify enslaving the black man worked really well for whites. And the same arguments that people use to justify abortion justify infanticide, for example. Peter Singer, the ethicist at Princeton University, who argues that no newborn should be considered a person until 30 days after birth and disabled infants can be killed on the spot if the parents want it, he's consistent in this regard. He looks at Planned Parenthood and says, you know what? You people are inconsistent. You want to draw this arbitrary line at birth and say you can kill this thing before birth but not after, when in reality there's no essential difference between that embryo or the newborn that would justify killing one but not the other. And he's absolutely correct on that. Your level of development does not determine your value. Uh, what about environment, where you're located? S-L-E-D, we're on the E now. Where you are does not determine what you are. People will say, well, you were in the womb. You have no rights till you come out. How does where you are determine what you are or how valuable you are? If you drove at least 17 miles to come to church today, can you put your hand up? If you traveled 17 miles to come to church, okay, that's pretty good. 27 miles? Pastor, you've got some faithful people here. They, they, you, you must be preaching some pretty good stuff, even though I'm told you tend to go long. Um, 37 miles. 2,007 miles, I win, okay? Now, if a journey of 2,007 miles did not change me from one kind of thing to another... How does a journey of seven inches down the birth canal suddenly transform you from non-human, non-valuable thing we can kill to valuable human being that we can't? And the answer is, if you weren't already human and valuable, simply changing your location isn't going to change what you are. Finally, degree of dependency. Yes, you depended on your mother for survival. And my answer is, so why does that matter? How does dependency on another human being mean we can intentionally kill you? Again, keep in mind... Your critics need to explain why these differences matter. It's not enough to simply point out a difference. I don't know if you've seen these two girls called the Henschel twins. They're now in their early 30s, but the press has followed them since infancy. They're two young women now. You look at them, and they're conjoined twins. They share each other's bodily systems. You look at them, there's one set of legs, and then from the waist up, two body trunks, two shoulders, two heads. Maybe you've seen their picture. If it's true that you have no right to life unless you can depend in the, live independently of another human being, neither one of those girls has a right to life, and, not, and both can be killed. Size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency are not good reasons for saying we could kill you then, but not now. Now, let's put this all together. What does this mean in terms of our duty? And I'll end with this. It means two things, men and women. It means, number one, we need to love our unborn neighbor and love his mother. How do we love our unborn neighbor? We stand up and defend him. So I'm going to tell you right now how to defend your pro-life view in a minute or less. I don't know if your family's like mine, but at Christmas and Thanksgiving, we get non-believers around our table. We have extended family members who are not Christian and also aren't pro-life, but they're welcome at our table and we have them. I want you to pretend you have an Aunt Betty from Boston. As a Laker fan, I know no good thing can come out of Boston. <laughs> Um, and so you have an Aunt Betty from Boston, and she comes to visit you at Thanksgiving, and between bites of turkey and stuffing, she says, now why are you pro-life? Here's the answer you're going to give her in a minute or less. Shane, can you time me on this? Is your watch working after playing all those drums? <laughs> okay. Start the clock. Aunt Betty, 
I'm pro-life because it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. And the science of embryology is clear that from the earliest stages of development, you were a distinct living and whole human being. You weren't part of another human being, Aunt Betty, like skin cells on the back of my hand. You were already a whole living member of the human family, even though you had yet to grow and develop. And you know what else, Aunt Betty? There's no essential difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that would justify killing you back then. Differences of size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency are not good reasons for saying we could kill you then, but not now. Did I get that done in under a minute? 30 some seconds. Okay, I'm slow on the basketball court, but that was absolutely rocking it. Now, you may have noticed, you may have noticed I did not cite any specific Bible verses, but did I communicate biblical truth, men and women? Yes, I did. That's your job. That's called putting a pebble in your shoe. Now, some of you, I noticed, you were trying to write faster than broke people at a Dave Ramsey seminar, keeping up with me. I want you to know, that was really bad, I know. I want you to know, for everybody who shows up tonight, you're going to have access to a, a notes that we're going to tell you how you can get them with that one-minute soundbite in it. And the, all the scientific and philosophic stuff I just gave you will all be there for you. This is our job, men and women, and we also love our unborn neighbor's mother. Can I tell you a, a very sobering statistic for me? 40% of all abortions annually are performed on women who have had one or more abortion already. Why is that? Because they didn't get healed from the first one. It's not enough for us to simply say abortion is wrong. We have got to show the truth, but then point people to the only person that can hear, cure their pain, and that is Jesus. We point them to the gospel. And by the way, I got to tell you, huge salute to your pastoral team here for being willing to let the truth be shown and then point people to the gospel. This is not a common thing. So Pastor Mike, thank you for this. And I want to say to any of you that are here today that have heard this message, reiterate something that Pastor Shane and Mike have already said. If at some point this week you need to approach the pastoral team and say, I need to talk to somebody about something, feel free to do that. They're going to reach out to you in love and with gospel truth. And I want you to know that the God of this universe is your father. He's not your judge when you trust in his son. And you can be welcomed into his family. And if you're still feeling the pain of that, you're thinking, man, I just feel out of full fellowship with Christ. I want you to know that God is eager to welcome you into his family. And he's already, you're being welcomed into God's family has nothing to do with you. People say, I could never forgive myself for having an abortion. You're right, you can't. The only one who can forgive you is God. And God has already done that in declaring you righteous in virtue of what Jesus did for you if your trust is in him. So have that confidence. Call your pastoral team and feel free to talk. They're not here to condemn you any more than I would be. Let's pray and ask the Lord to strengthen us while we're on that hostile beach. Father in heaven, thank you for this church. Thank you for those who lead it and who point people to you. Help us to be your ambassadors, to be proclaimers of truth, and also to open the truth of Scripture to people who need healing, who are wounded. We thank you for welcoming us, each of us here today, into your family in virtue of what Jesus did for us, not ourselves, and help us to be confident that we can live as forgiven sinners and redeemed sinners because of what Jesus did. For your son's sake we pray. Amen.